Well, good morning, Mercy Road. How are we doing? If I have not met you yet, my name is Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor, and I am honored to be here and to share in the study of God's Word with you. We're in a, a summer sermon series called Lessons from Lockdown, written by the Apostle Paul, written by a man who is literally a political prisoner, uh, a prisoner of Rome in the ancient world. He was in chains. He was in a, a lockdown that really our own lockdown does not even begin to compare to, and yet he exudes joy and contentment and peace and wisdom in this short little letter that could be described as a thank you note that Paul wrote to a church that he had planted years earlier, uh, comprised mainly of combat veterans from the Roman army, and they're living in a time where Christianity is not a popular philosophy. It's not good to be a follower of Jesus. They are beginning to become persecuted, and he's instilling courage into this group of people, and he is really making them think twice about the purpose of life and our response to suffering. How important is this for our current moment? If you are able, would you stand as we just revere the reading of God's word? I'm reading from Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. You may take a seat. The lesson that Paul has for us today, I think, is very straightforward, pretty easy to teach on, not a very complicated or abstract thing to consider, but, but the application of the lesson that Paul has for us today, to actually do it, to put it into practice, that's actually a difficult thing, and it will take a lot of intentionality on your part and resolve. You're going to have to actually want to do this, and so will I. Uh, we're really thinking about the type of people we want to become and, and the role that fixing our thoughts on certain things as opposed to other things has to play in our development as, as people and into the character that, that we develop in ourselves and other people. How do we fix our thoughts on the right things? That's the question we're asking today. Viktor Frankl, a famous author, was a survivor of the Holocaust and he was right on the verge of writing a very important book that was the consummation of his life work, and he had it all written down in notes. And when the Nazis came and, and they took him and his family members, they also confiscated his life's work. Can you imagine? I mean, some of you have deleted something, a Microsoft Word document by accident, and you're like, no, it's gone. But this is a bigger deal. He, he's never getting that back, and now he is a prisoner in the Holocaust. Every one of his significant relatives, his family members, except for one, would be murdered in the Holocaust. And, and Viktor Frankl eventually, as a Holocaust survivor, writes a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's a short, pithy, amazing book that describes his uh, take on human psychology, logotherapy, he calls it, uh, taken from the Greek word logos that the, the apostle uh, John uses when he opens up his gospel account. Logos means logic. It's meaning. And basically, Viktor Frankl said there was 
only two types of people in the concentration camps. There were people who succumbed to despair and, and completely became animalistic and gave up and fatalistic. Or th there was also a few people, very rare, who understood that the last freedom we have as human beings, when everything is taken away, is the freedom to respond, the freedom to fix our thinking on certain things and not on other things. He would write in his book uh, story after story, anecdotes about how people would start to get mentally stuck on a worst-case scenario, or they would get news that a relative was, was killed, and they would never come out of the tailspin. They mentally had a death sentence, and their bodies would, would actually respond to what they were fixing their mind on. We live in an age where it's really tough to fix your mind on that, which is true and good and right and beautiful, because we have these little things in our pockets, and and a lot of what we really are tempted to look at and take in is really not edification, but it's entertainment. And that's the first uh, point. If you're taking notes, you might consider writing that down. We prioritize edification over entertainment. That is how we do what the Apostle Paul is exhorting us to do. We prioritize edification. What kind of word is that? You know, when I use big, old-fashioned nerdy words, it's because there's not a better word than that word. I wish there was a synonym there, but edification gets it perfect. An edifice is like a mound. It's something that is built up. So to edify is to build something up. Paul is saying, whether you're in chains, whether you're persecuted, whether you're healthy or sick, happy or sad, young or old, male or female, Fix your mind on things that build you up, build you up namely in the faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Here's the problem. We live in a culture that is saturated with entertainment and not edification. If you were to just think about this, this is going to freak some of you out. Don't worry, we don't have the technology to do this. But if we could look at the history of your thought life for the last year, just like you could look at a internet browser history, and it was all laid bare, everything you've ever thought about. And you could see with little charts and bars, the frequency and a little pie chart would say, well, this is how often you've worried. And this is how often you have thought about sports. And this is how often you've thought about your appearance. And this is how often you have just felt profoundly offended in traffic. And this is how often you've thought about Jesus. And this is how often you've thought about fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. What would that look like? Now, you can't change the past. I, I sometimes get in mental ruts where I'm thinking about things that are not good, true, beautiful. Pastor Chad had a wonderful message. If you, if you didn't get to uh, hear it or watch it, feel free to watch it on demand on our website or on Facebook. 4,000 people have, by the way, Chad, uh, online. So thank you for edifying us yesterday, or uh, last week, rather, on, on the importance of not worrying so that's part of it. We need to really think about edification. Did you know a study came out in 2019 among children who are 8 to 12 years old? They watched how many hours of screen time? Not, not homework time, not like educational iPad time, just kind of entertainment a day. What do you guys think? Four 
to five hours. And that was pre-pandemic. You got to assume it's higher. But luckily, we get so much smarter as we age, right? You know, you know it's true. You're like putting your phone away. Whoa, whoa. Do you ever get those little reports where they tell you on your iPhone how much screen time you've watched? And you're like, don't judge me. You don't know what it's like, Google. This is tough, this pandemic. Four to five hours. You know, there is a, a raging debate among caffeine lovers of the world whether one should engage in a French press, you know where French press is, or a drip coffee machine, or a percolator, or a Keurig. Those are kind of your main four. Raise your hand if you're kind of a Keurig person. Oh, you guys like weak coffee, I'm sorry. Um, how, about, how about a drip person? Drip? I am, but only, only because of convenience. How about French press? You guys have a lot of time on your hands. It's really gross to clean. And, and lastly, a percolator. No percolators. There's none of you? Oh, yes. All right. All of it. Yep. Just, just make sure it's caffeinated, right? Percolators are interesting. Uh, they've almost entirely been replaced by the drip coffee. But basically, a percolator will cause uh, the water to steam up and collect on the top. And then, and then the steam is what drips. And then it becomes like weak coffee. But it doesn't stop there. It then steams up again, the coffee. And then it drips again on the grounds. And then it's a little more caffeinated coffee. And then it steams up again. And it keeps going as long as you want it to go. And it can turn into sludge. When I was in the Army, they love percolators. They like to chew their coffee, right? Um, it, it, it does keep you awake. A percolator is really the ideal metaphor. Pastor Tom, who I write these messages with, as well as Chad now, um, Pastor Tom pastors a church in California. We, we were thinking, what is the perfect metaphor for what Paul's trying to get across here? And, and Tom rightly noted, it's a percolator. And I had to read the Wikipedia page to know all that because I, I, I didn't know really exactly how it all worked. But, but it's interesting. A percolator is basically water ruminating with caffeinated grounds over and over and over and over. And that is what Paul is saying. Fix your mind on certain things, the good, the true, the beautiful, the lovely, the right and the right making, and let it just kind of percolate in your head all day. This is really different than... Uh, our cultural uh, moment that is fascinated with mindfulness and uh, Zen Buddhism, for example, which would say you are supposed to completely push out every thought and empty yourself. That's kind of what's in vogue right now. That's not what Paul's saying. He's like, no, don't empty yourself. Fill your mind, but be very selective about what you fill your mind with. Choose things that edify, that build you up, not <clears throat> merely entertain you. I'm extremely allergic to those yellow uh, flowers out there, so if I sound like uh, I'm suffering from allergies, I am. You can pray for that. Sec secondly, we create reminders rather than empty rituals. So how, how do we fix our mind on the things that, that Paul wants us to? Well, move past ritual because we've all been a part of empty rituals and when we realize kind of the pointlessness of that and replace rituals with reminders. Think about it. 
you use your phone all the time, create a reminder to do this. And it dings, and you do this. My, my kids have a reminder on screen time when they play the Nintendo Switch, and they're really good at not hearing it. I can hear it from the other room, ding, 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 ding. They'll play right through it. I think it goes for like 10 minutes. Uh, but in general, reminders work, right? And so Paul is saying something like, create reminders. Verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me put into practice, this is a kind of a complicated sentence. In Greek, he's, he's talking about practices that have been handed down through, he's a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, through rabbis. So there are things that have been handed to one person, and then the next person hands it to the next person, and the next generation, and so forth, and so forth. And these are reminders. So what would be a reminder rather than a ritual? It's hard because some of them look like rituals. A wedding would be a good reminder that new life is coming. And, and a Christian wedding where Christ is the center and the purpose of marriage is not just happiness, but it's transformation of character between two people. It is to create a flourishing family where, where any offspring from this union could grow up in this secure environment, known, fully known, fully loved, led to know Jesus Christ. So that wedding ceremony, it's not an empty ritual. It's a powerful reminder that points us to our union with Christ. Even a funeral done rightly is not just an empty ritual. It's a reminder that this is not all there is. This life is very temporary, and whether you die on the way home or you live another 90 years, you can be reminded that you will be with Christ. The best is yet to come. Have you ever been to a, a funeral where people just don't really believe in anything? It's a bummer. It's really sad. And, and, and people tried their best to say, well, he lived a good life. But I guess if there's no life after this, if there's no good God orchestrating everything towards a good eternal end, everything he said, did, or, or stood for will be forgotten. The sun will go out eventually and nothing will matter. And all. There will be some rolls and snacks on your way out. Enjoy the fellowship in the narthex, right? You know, it's really depressing. But a Christian wedding where Christ is exalted and the gospel is preached and, and we can say this person was very imperfect but they tried to respond to the perfect love of God in their life, that becomes a reminder for us to live with intentionality, to fix our mind on heavenly things, on the life to come and bring heaven to earth. Now those are kind of ritual reminders. We're going to take communion Next Sunday, I invite anyone who would like to take communion to either our outdoor service at 9 or 10.30 indoor. This becomes an important reminder of the grace and the cost that God in Jesus Christ bore for the sin of every individual and our corporate sin together and the promise that the grave is not the final word. We'll go into the ground, yes, but we'll rise to the skies. And every time we take that juice and that little wafer, it reminds us. What other reminders do you have in your life? Pastor Chad said uh, in last Sunday's message that, you know, he does push the coffee start button before he opens his Bible, so he's not perfect, but he does open his Bible. <laughs> and he does spend time, and it's not hours and hours, but it's at least, you know, five to 15 minutes a day. And this is an important thing because it becomes a reorientation, a reminder in the morning. And, and I'm not that consistent. So that's why we hired Chad. 
This uh, transitions us into the third and final point. We admire and imitate saints rather than celebrities. I was having a conversation with a, a couple in our church, and, and she comes kind of from a Catholic background, and he comes from an evangelical kind of non-denomination background, covenant background. And so they're, they're wondering, how does her Catholic background and his evangelical background, like, how does that work? And one of our topics that we discussed were the role of saints in the Catholic church. And sometimes, you know, uh, one of the parties in the couple said, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with this idea of praying to saints. And we talked about that. And it really forced me to think a little more deeply about the role of venerating certain Christians. Why do we do that? Now, I, I'm not so cer certain that praying to saints is something that the Bible directs us to do. I, I think you'll always be safe if you pray right to Jesus or you ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for you because you don't know what to pray for. But I do think that whoever I imitate is really important. Whoever I look up to and, and I just say, I want to do life like that person. I think she is inspirational. I think he has got that right. And I want to think like him. I want to act like her. I want to feel emotions like they do. It seems like human beings are made hardwired to look up to other people. The problem is, Mercy Road, if we are not intentional in who we fix our thoughts on when it comes to imitation, we will imitate the wrong people. Have you noticed that celebrities are crazy? I mean, has that occurred to you? And, and has it also occurred to you that we might be crazy because we're so darn interested in the opinions of crazy people? I mean, think about it. Celebrities, they just, they're just imploding constantly. They, they can't stay married for more than five minutes. They're, they're in and out of, of rehab. They, they've got crazy issues. I mean, it just never ends. The drama never ends. What, what is it about a celebrity that we find so alluring? Well, usually they're really good at something like acting or playing basketball or whatever. But, but my theory is that human beings were not made to be worshipped and we buckle under the weight of worship. When people start to worship us, we implode. Our lives fall apart. We unravel. And yet, we are supposed to admire certain people and certain qualities about certain people and our admiration should move us into imitation. I often say to young preachers, the best way to learn how to preach is to listen to preachers who you admire but don't just listen to one. Because what will happen if you do that, you'll, you'll turn into a parody version of them. Like if you do that, to, if, if I'm the guy, you'll just shave your head and grow a beard and do erratic hand motions when you talk, and, and it won't be you, right? So you have to listen to a few different preachers, and then the imitation over time, you'll find your own voice, and you'll be original, and it'll be beautiful, but you will have taken with you some of the the elements that are, are worthy of imitation from those communicators of Scripture. Who are you admiring and imitating in your life? Who are the saints, hagios in Greek, holy ones, that you look up to? My uh, wife and I had 
dinner the other night with a missionary couple. Um, they are missionaries to India, and they work with the poorest of the poor in the slums, and they've been stuck here because they came here for a fundraising deal, and then the coronavirus hit, and so they've been here the whole time, and it was palpable when we walked in their little apartment, just the joy that these people exuded, the spiritual maturity, the depth, how excited they were to talk about Jesus. They were just radiating with the love of God. And, and, and both Erica and I on the drive home said, we need to spend more time around those people. They, and Erica said, yeah, I feel like she pushes me. When we were talking, I just want to know Jesus more just by talking to her. The problem is, if we're not intentional about imitating a group of people or a few individuals who aren't perfect but are making progress in holiness, in surrendering more and more of their life to Jesus Christ and what he wants for them, we're going to start to imitate the wrong people. And we're going to be crushed when they let us down. Paul is saying something pretty scandalous in this letter. He's saying, imitate me. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Paul was in his 60s or 70s by that point. And it's really interesting, because he wrote 70-some percent of the New Testament, we all assume he was a really good preacher. But actually, if you read the New Testament carefully, there's several points where people are like, Paul, would you not talk in public anymore? We just don't think you're very eloquent. And you make us uncomfortable. You're kind of intense. And we have actually found several other pastors who say things that we really like to hear, and they're really eloquent. And also, Paul, you're kind of not good looking. They don't say it quite that direct, but, but we have a lot of evidence to suggest Paul was just not a good looking dude. Isn't it weird to think that before cameras, you could be famous and not good looking? It's, it's really rare to be a, a very homely-looking individual who's famous today, right? Because for some reason, we, we want to follow these celebrities who look perfect. If you don't have a six-pack, we don't think that you're qualified to speak into our life on a certain issue. You know, if you're, if you're not a model. So you have Paul, who's all gnarled. His hands would have been very disfigured because he was a tent maker he worked with leather, a leather worker, because he, he had this belief that he never wanted anyone to think it was about money. He wanted to remove every obstacle, so he was constantly trying to pay his way. And whenever he could just pay his own way, he would do that. And so that required him, the philosopher, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, this, this Ivy League trained equivalent rabbi to have gnarled hands, because he's a blue collar worker. And in the ancient world, the hands of a philosopher were supposed to be well manicured, and his weren't. He also was beat almost to death over a dozen times for preaching Christ. And this is before level one trauma centers. His bones were broken and they didn't set well. His face was so bludgeoned, some scholars think that he was almost completely blind when he wrote this letter. Imagine being beat so frequently that your vision is starting to go. And you have to dictate a thank you note. And yet, even though you can barely see out of your eyes that have been so beat up, and you can barely write 
out of your arthritic hands that have cut leather for years and, and pulled and stitched tents together, as well as writing the New Testament, even in that condition, sitting on death row, you're just saying, all I can think about when I think of you is how thankful I am and how good God is and about the life to come. And it doesn't matter if I live or die. My circumstances are not the main point because I've learned to fix my eyes, my mental eyes on what is good, what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely. I was talking to my wife about this and I put on social media that I was, I was speaking on this and she, she reminded me of something. We, as a family, choose a little scripture verse every year that kind of defines that year. And sometimes it's eerily prophetic. Like, like it, so you kind of want to choose happy verses, right? So, so that, you know, you can avoid those global pandemics and such. But, but anyways, in 2014, the, the verse was Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you because he trusts in you. And I remember that was a kind of a tough year for our family. I was transitioning. Things weren't going well at the church where I was at. I, I was processing some stuff from the Iraq war kind of for the first time. And, and I remember just saying that, okay, I need to keep my mind fixed on you, God. And that is where my peace will come from. And so I kept repeating that my wife had this to say, this is a verse I memorized years ago, referring to the one we're talking about in Philippians. And it is one I still frequently meditate on when I find myself in places of anger, fear, insecurity. As I attempt to take every thought captive, I can't just tell myself not to think negatively about something, but rather I need to replace those thoughts with things that are pure, lovely, admirable, etc. Saying this verse aloud is a brain training exercise for me, we may not always have control over the thoughts that enter our minds, but we do have control over what we choose to keep our minds focused on. That's such an important point at the end. Some of you have unhealthy levels of shame in your life because you have sexual thoughts that come to mind on a frequent basis or rage issues and anger issues or offense issues that pop up in your mind or, or just really negative thoughts of despair or even self-loathing or hate or you know, and you just think because you've had that thought, God is somehow angry with you and doesn't love you and he doesn't have a plan for your life. You need to really think about that. We live in a spiritual war zone. There is a spiritual enemy. There are a lot of distractions. Our culture, the world, the flesh, the devil, all of it would love for you to get so wrapped up in negativity in your mind all the time that you spiral downward and eventually take your own life the fact that you've had the thought does not mean the thought has to move in there. An old evangelist w was talking about lust once, and he said, you know, lust is like a little bird, and if the bird happened to land on your head, you know, that's really not your fault. But if you let it build a nest and started to feed it worms, that's a whole other condition altogether, right? Friends, I don't think Paul is just talking about the power of positive thinking here. I think he's talking about something even more profound. He's saying that if we surrender our mental thought life in a disciplined way, on a regular way, with reminders, with a, with a focus on things that build us up, that we will start to become like the people we most admire. And who are the people that you most admire? 
They're people who have suffered well. They're people who know how to forgive even when forgiveness is so terribly difficult. They're people who most resemble Jesus. I think deep, deep down in every human heart, we all long and long desperately to look like Jesus on the inside, to love like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to feel like Jesus. And when we live in ways and think in ways that are out of line with what is true and good and beautiful and like Jesus, we experience pain and despair. And we just sense that this isn't right. When you, you know, take a break and watch some Netflix, that's not wrong. But when, when you come out of a, a Netflix coma of eight hours, do you feel good? No. So again, as we close, super easy to teach on this concept, super hard to live. So I think the question, the uncomfortable question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to fix your mind on? You might start by just saying, God, I don't really have anybody to imitate. I listen to a lot of sermons, but I don't have a lot of close Christian friendships. So would you, would you give me some insight on what I need to do to more consistently be in relationship with someone who I can learn from? Maybe it's taking a page out of Chad's book and saying, you know, when that percolator is going in the morning, the metaphorical percolator is going to go with it. And I'm going to start to ruminate on some scripture and talk to God and it doesn't have to be perfect, and it can be eight minutes one morning and two minutes the next and 15 the next. It just needs to happen. And I need to value that time as much as I value my coffee. Maybe for some of us, it's just coming more consistently to things that build us up, like Sunday worship. We have Saturday morning men's and women's groups. We're going to start Monday night adult programming. We have kids ministry happening on Wednesday nights, and and even though that's scary in our pandemic time, maybe for some of us, that needs to happen because that's the priority. I'm not shaming anybody who has health concerns and can't come to that, but, but think about it. As I look at this crowd here, I see people that build me up. I see Andrew Anderson, the, the pastor who I followed here at Mercy Road, the former lead pastor. And that builds me up. I see Tom and Kelly wearing their heart shirts. They just love to serve other people. And that builds me up. And it reminds me, they're a visual reminder to keep serving. I see Susan, someone who has shown joy in times of suffering in the last few years. And that reminds me, if I'm in pain, joy is still possible. I get emotional if I keep naming all you people, so I'll, uh, I'll stop there. Friends, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Gracious God, thank you for this lesson from Paul, this lesson in lockdown. Thank you for this church. It really is a beautiful community of people from all ages and backgrounds and I just ask that you would help us to cultivate a thought life that makes us more and more like you. Forgive us, Lord, for being very unintentional in aiming our thoughts 
in fixing our thoughts. Help us to make progress. We're not perfect, but you do just ask for us to trust you enough to make progress. Lord, if there is um, entertainment that has been distracting us, that we just need to go without for a while or maybe go without permanently, gently convict us, not with shame, but out of love. Lord, if we are in dire need of someone to look up to, to imitate, not a perfect person, but someone who's making progress, would you make that divine connection? Would you show us who to reach out to? Father, we thank you, we love you, and we give you this this beautiful day. In Jesus' name, amen.